Hello, welcome to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. I'm Tom Street, and today I'll be playing you an interview with Tillman Ruff, who is one of the founding members of the organisation that campaigned to launch um, the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons with the UN. Um, and they were really successful with that. They've, I think, they've got 86 signatories to it now, according to Wikipedia anyway. Um, and they're awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for their efforts. Um, so I'll let Tillman tell you more about that. Here's the interview. Hi, Tillman. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It's, it's really wonderful to have you here. Great to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. So uh, you've been working for years uh, on the campaign and, and, the, and the treaty to abolish nuclear weapons. So how did you get started with that? Well, I guess it goes back away. And in some ways, it's a, maybe a rather unusual thing for a physician to be involved with. It's often regarded as a you know, a political issue, a security issue, not a public health or a medical issue, but I think it very profoundly is. And it's just that nuclear weapons are really the most acute existential threat that humanity and the biosphere face. And that it's a totally preventable problem. Like we can fix this pretty easily. Nine countries have them. We've already eliminated more than 80% of them. We know how to do this. Um, we've made major progress with all of the other indiscriminate, inhumane weapons. So we can do this. It's a solvable problem. And it gets relatively little attention, um, particularly from a public health perspective. So, um, you know, otherwise I've worked on immunisation especially, and, you know, that's an enormously rewarding area where you can make so much difference, not just for individuals, but, you know, control and potentially eradicate diseases across whole populations, extraordinarily mm. powerful tools. But um, compared with its importance, like what I could be doing, the, the nuclear work just seemed um, the area that was relatively neglected and uh, really just crying out for attention and evidence-based advocacy. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of health issues in understanding what nuclear weapons do, what radiation does, um, and also in how people and systems operate and the fallibility of those, um, you know, as to some of the factors and risks that, that um, control how nuclear weapons might, might actually be used. Um, and, you know, physicians tend to be very practical people. Health workers in general are used to dealing with human frailty and, and um, foibles, you know, every day. Um, so both from the point of view of, of the prevention aspects and the education aspects, as well as um, understanding the impacts and risks of nuclear weapons, public health has an awful lot to contribute. Like right. every other sphere of human activity and every area of expertise does, I think. I mean, this is something that touches on on everything. Whatever you value, whatever you're working for, whatever you stri field you're striving in, um, frankly, it's jeopardised. Everything that's been gained and built, everything that you hope and long for and love is threatened by these weapons. So it doesn't matter what field you're in. So I think if, from every area of human endeavour, there's a important contribution and responsibility um, to to deal with this most acute existential threat. Yeah, okay. Uh, what, what should we understand about what the 
public health consequences um, could be for the use of nuclear weapons? Well, nuclear weapons are both just horrendously big bombs. Um, and, you know, to give you a sense of that, the numbers that can be hard to understand just to fathom, uh, to comprehend what these these gargantuan destructive devices do. But the biggest bomb that's ever been exploded uh, was 50, uh, 50 million tonnes of high explosive equivalent. It was called Tsar Bomber. It was exploded in 1961 in Novaya Zemlya in northern Russia in the Arctic um, in the atmosphere. And it contained about four and a half times as much explosive power as all explosions used in all wars throughout human history. All the bombs that have been dropped, all the artillery shells that have been lobbed, all the grenades, all the landmines, every explosive munition that's been used in all the wars throughout human history was, was less than a quarter of what was in this one bomb. So in terms of their destructive potential, it's almost limitless. Um, and it involves not just, of course, the blast effects, but but ignition of fires and, and of course, a number of aspects that are unique to nuclear weapons, which relate to the ionising radiation is, is, I guess, the best known. Um, that's both an initial pulse emitted from, from the bomb, um, as well as creation of a whole lot of different radioactive elements that spread with the, you know, the wind and the rain uh, indiscriminately across borders and have very long-term effects um, that can be global. That's, What's the the long that's the best known yeah. sort of specific effect, but, but the, mm -hmm. there's a couple of others in terms of it, their potential to impact the global climate. Um, and also this thing called electromagnetic pulse, which is um, essentially a very powerful electromagnetic pulse is created by a nuclear explosion and they can be be the bombs can be constructed so that that aspect is particularly enhanced and that's sort of several millions of times stronger than a lightning strike in terms of its electromagnetic yep. pulse so that can basically interfere with essentially everything electronic and electrical uh, over a continental scale so for example one such high altitude explosion doesn't even have to be a very large bomb over australia or north america or europe could basically incapacitate every civilian um, bit of electronic and electrical infrastructure, everything that's connected to the grid. Um, so essentially, you know, cause mass societal dis disruption. Uh, ev mm -hmm. Every electronic circuit that's not specifically hardened and even, you know, not all military equipment is specifically protected against that. So there are some specific effects of nuclear weapons as well as their you know, the fact that they're just so big. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, and, and I, I believe that you, I, I heard a, a talk that you um, gave, um, which I'll, I'll put links to in the show notes about um, the, the devastating impacts of a nuclear winter that could be caused by even, a, you know, what could be described as a small-scale nuclear war, say, between India and Pakistan, if they exchanged, what, 100 or 200 warheads that would cause a nuclear winter um uh, yeah so this is yeah. this is um i think the most important new science for me of the last um decade and a half really uh is our understanding of the global climatic impacts of nuclear weapons this was a phenomenon that was discovered back in the 
early 80s and, and like many important scientific discoveries it was really a serendipitous discovery. Um, Paul Crutzen, Nobel um, Physics Prize winning um, atmospheric physicist from Germany actually set out to discover, to, to research um, the effects on, on stratospheric ozone that protects us from ultraviolet radiation from the sun of a nuclear war, what would the impact? He, he was commissioned by the by the Swedish Royal Academy of Sciences to do some work for um, for a report and discovered that, hey, what about all the smoke that would be created by nuclear explosions and might that have a bigger impact uh, in blocking incident radiation um, than, you know, the effect of depleting, accentuated depletion of stratospheric ozone and allowing more ultraviolet through. And he actually found out that the smoke found that the smoke was a really major effect, and then that was picked up by a, a very famous group of, of scientists led by Carl Sagan, um, planetary physicist in in the US, um, who showed that even as small as a hundred nuclear weapons. Um, so this is at a time when there were over seventy thousand nuclear weapons in the world. That a hundred of those, if targeted on cities, could potentially put so much soot and smoke into the upper atmosphere from the fires that they ignited um, that it would substantially cool, darken and dry the planet um, and decimate agriculture. And that was done with atmospheric models, you know, in the early 80s that were by today's standards really relatively crude. And the same findings had been replicated completely independently by Russian scientists. The physics is really simple and very robust, you know, if you put black carbon rich smoke into the upper atmosphere, it acts as a, as a blanket. I mean, it blocks incident radiation, it cools, darkens, dries the surface. The physics is really robust. The important new science that's been, is refining and validating and extending um, that work in more recent years, particularly by groups in the US led by Professor um, Alan Robock at Rutgers University, um, Brian Toon in California, Mike Mills and others at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in, in Boulder, Colorado. Um, and they have examined with the much more sophisticated um, modeling of the atmosphere that we now have, um, you know, that underpins our really quite sophisticated understanding of global heating and other atmospheric events and our ability to understand what happens with wildfires and volcanic eruptions and, and all sorts of other atmospheric events. They've applied those state-of-the-art models um, to examining in more detail different scenarios for possible nuclear war, including, you know, what, how big would a nuclear war have to be to have have um, global climatic impacts? And they've discovered that even a, a relatively small nuclear war, as you mentioned, uh, such as between India and Pakistan or involving Israel's nuclear weapons in the Middle East or involving North Korea or potentially China in Northeast Asia, um, even without involving the Russian and American arsenals, which between them are over 90% of the world's nuclear weapons, um, even a, a, a nuclear war that involved, you know, one or 2% of the global nuclear arsenal targeted on cities in one part of one region, like not mm. say South Asia between India and Pakistan, um, would, 
the smoke from burning cities would loft so much smoke into the atmosphere, millions of tons, that it would um, cool, darken and dry the climate, essentially producing ice age conditions pretty much overnight. Um, you know, average temperatures of sort of three to eight degrees, surface temperatures colder than present, um, which is basically gets us back to the to the coldest period of the last ice age about 20,000 years ago and would absolutely decimate agricultural production um, globally and, and produce massive famines that would last for, for many years and put basically a substantial proportion of the population of the world at risk. Uh, when, you say when you say massive famines, do you, do you mean a, like a billion people dying? Talking, talking, putting billions of people, you know, yeah. billions of people at billions, risk. Okay. Um, that's right. Extraordinary, like completely unprecedented in human history. And that's because, um, and that's with a nuclear war that involves, you know, less than 2% of the global nuclear number of weapons. And because they're disproportionately smaller, um, actually you know less than a tenth of a percent of their explosive yield um, so so does it in a way it doesn't really matter if if you're in a place that's targeted by nuclear weapons exactly because so this everyone, is the point that yeah. these are completely indiscriminate these are not weapons in any meaningful military usable sense that can be targeted that can in any way respect the hard-won rules of war you know the rules of international humanitarian law that govern what can and can't, can't be done in conflict i mean wars have rules and you are supposed to distinguish between com combatant targets military targets and civilian targets you're not supposed to attack civilian targets you're not supposed to use destructive capacity that's disproportionate to the military objective you're not supposed to cause superfluous injury or unnecessary suffering you're not supposed to do things that have long-term transboundary or environmental effects. You're not supposed to damage cultural property. You're not supposed to impede the prospects for recovery and reconciliation after conflict. There are all of these rules which nuclear weapons violate. <clears throat> and it, the con whole concept of, of winners and losers means nothing in a nuclear war. The climate effects are completely indiscriminate. Um, mm. So even people you know, in Africa would be affected by a war in South Asia or Northeast Asia. Um, and, you know, these are global suicide bombers, essentially, that can't be used. These are not useful military um, weapons in any sense. And why do these climatic effects are so, so surprisingly big? It's because nuclear weapons are really efficient at igniting um, over very large areas you know, fires that basically would converge and cause these massive confluent firestorms. So even in the relatively small, by today's standards, tactical size nuclear weapon, 15,000 tonnes of high explosive equivalent that was used in Hiroshima, is estimated to have released about a thousand times as much energy in the fires that it started um, as the explosive power of the bomb itself. Um, so it's not so much the bomb, it's the fact that you can produce eventually, essentially burn a city with, with a modern nuclear weapon. For example, if the largest weapons that are currently dis deployed, which are actually on Chinese land-based missiles, um, five megatons, up to five megatons in size, if one of those landed on a city like, like Melbourne or Sydney or, or any other city, the area that would essentially comprehensively burn, 
with temperatures over 800 degrees, most of the oxygen consumed and basically nothing surviving um, would be about 46 kilometres across. Mm. So that, that's pretty much most of the urban area of, of, of most cities. It's massive. It's, it's about 1,200 square kilometres in total. Um, so that's why the climatic effects are so uh, extraordinarily, you know, unexpectedly large because cities are incredibly fuel dense. You know, all of the wood, plastic, petroleum products, plastics, chemicals, uh, stuff that can burn. Um, yeah. So a lot more than a forest fire because I, I would have... Much more than a forest fire, yeah. Yeah, because I, I would have thought those fires that we had, um, how long ago was it now? Maybe three, two or three years ago across southeastern Australia would be larger than burning a couple of cities, but that's not the case. No, in terms of area, they certainly were. Mm. Um, and there's similar experience from severe fires in the Northern Hemisphere in Canada in, in recent years. But those 1920 summer fires, um, like 2019, 2020 fires in Australia, certainly put massive plumes of smoke up into the stratosphere, the lower stratosphere. Um, and they and it circled the globe multiple times and it had demonstrable cooling effects um, across mm. the mid and high latitudes of the Southern Hemisphere. Um, but yeah, the smoke is much less dense. Uh, you know, the fuel is much less dense. There's, there's less smoke produced and the smoke has less black carbon in it. Um, than, than basically burning industrial facilities and cities. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it seems like what you're saying, the bottom line is the weapons is so destructive that we just absolutely, nobody can afford for them to really be used in any any serious way. And um, if, they're, if they're out there, then, you know, surely sooner or later, you know, something's going to go wrong and they, they will exactly. be Exactly. I mean, the evidence yeah. is that, that every, you know, systems, every complex human and technical system is fallible. Things yeah. happen. Um, there's plenty of evidence of that in relation to nuclear weapons, you know, that things have gone wrong. There have been multiple um, mishaps of varying levels of seriousness, but there have certainly been at least five documented well-documented occasions and probably more but at least five that are publicly known and well-documented uh, six actually where where either the russian or the american nuclear arsenals were actually launch procedures were initiated in the mistaken belief that they were under attack because of you know a couple of cents worth of a computer chip failing mm. because somebody put the wrong tape in a you know a training tape in in the real machine um because of unusual reflections on clouds um, at certain times of the year in the northern hemisphere because that were misinterpreted by early warning satellites because of all kinds of of, of human and technical errors and combinations of them um, that nearly brought us to the brink and you know there are accidents mishaps that happen in in such incredibly big complex dispersed systems that are high wired i mean a lot of the there are about 2,000 nuclear weapons that are on high alert. They're in Russia, uh, the US, France, and the UK. So they're weapons that are basically ready to go within a few minutes of a decision to launch them. So, you know, that requires system, you know, a, a very low, you know, finely tuned trigger, basically. Um, and it, it 
greatly increases the risk of accidental or inadvertent launch because it dramatically reduces the decision time, the ability to check and verify, um, and increase. And it's based on the old idea that, you know, this in this theory of mutually assured destruction that was the sort of theoretical underpinning for, for, for nuclear deterrence theory. Um, it's basically psychological game theory, um, but rather than anything proven or you know established in the laws of nature, but but essentially the idea is that that um, you know a rational adversary won't invite unacceptable consequences by initiating a nuclear attack. Um, but the whole idea of these high alert systems is that um, if there were an attack, a preemptive attack made, then then you you would need to they would many of those incoming missiles would be targeted on you know the adversaries military installations and missiles so the need to use them before before you lose them mm. um so the idea of needing to initiate a retaliation based on launch on warning before the missiles actually strike that's the that's the historical basis for these weapons that remain in this incredibly dangerous Cold War relic of, of high alert status. There's a couple so of- They're constantly on a hair trigger, ready to shoot first, like in a Wild West standoff. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a very dangerous situation. I haven't it's, heard anyone ever say- It's a really dangerous situation. <laughs> it's really yeah. dangerous. And there's, mm. there's absolutely no need for it, even if you're in a- thinking, you know, there are lots of issues with deterrence and, but even if you're thinking that deterrence is the justification, um, then, you know, there are large numbers of nuclear weapons deployed on submarines in the deep ocean, um, which ought to provide a pretty invulnerable, um, mm. you know, retaliatory capacity. Yeah, very and, hard to, to, to attack are, those. You know, there are people yeah. who've had to manage nuclear weapons in the past, uh, including, you know, like Phil Perry, the um, former defence secretary during the Clinton years, um, you know, who, who absolutely thinks that the land-based missiles you know, should be gotten rid of. Um, and they're basically the ones on, on high alert, most of them. Um, so that, that particularly increases um, the level of risk because you've got these very finely tuned systems that are, you know, ready to go. and. And obviously, the things that that need to be maintained to keep them launch ready within a couple of minutes are also factors that increase the likelihood of an accidental and the vulnerability to an accidental or inadvertent launch, or to to a launch by cyber attack. You know, which is an increasingly dangerous prospect. Um, and I think there there are two sort of trends that that increase uh, longer term trends that increase the risk as well as this extraordinary explosion of nuclear saber rattling that we've seen in after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, but the two other longer term trends is that a climate stressed world is a more dangerous and conflict prone world. We've seen over the last decade or so the number of internationalized armed conflicts. So those that involve at least one state outside the area of conflict, um, which are disproportionately the larger and, and um, nuclear armed states those those conflicts have increased very dramatically and that's essentially seems pretty clearly related to the increasing food and water insecurity conflict over um, land and resources um, related to 
accelerating climate change and the population displacements associated uh, with that. And the other sort of major development is 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 of cyber uh, offensive use of cyber warfare, which has now become really firmly established in the armamentarium and use of you know tens of of nations and to which nuclear command and control systems um, you know those who've managed them tell us this uh, to nuclear command and control systems are vulnerable uh, to, to to cyber attack um, which could be take a variety of forms by by disrupting the early warning systems by you know creating um, perceptions of false you know false alerts um, attacks that haven't actually happened um, that could potentially take control of a, of a nuclear weapons platform like a submarine um, and a variety of, of other ways. So um, I think, and, and the trouble with, with that is that it's very difficult to, to counter against. It's, it's potentially something that um, is within the realm of access of not just governments, but non-state actors, you know, terrorist organisations. Um, and we've already seen multiple examples of its use um, to attack all kinds of civilian and military targets um, really extensively, banking systems, health systems, you know, Sony Corporation, I mean, um, as well as, you know, the computers of the National Nuclear Security Agency in the United States, the agency that manages the US nuclear arsenal were extensively hacked um, back a couple of years ago. So, so the, this is a very real um, threat. You know, we're not in a stable situation. Nuclear weapons aren't some done and dusted problem, the legacy of the Cold War that's, that unfortunately we haven't completed the sorting of, uh, that just sort of sticks around in the background. It's a real and present danger. And I, and I think if, there's, if there is a silver um, lining to the terribly dark cloud of the, of the terrible um, Russian invasion of, of Ukraine, uh, it would be that a whole lot more people have realised that the nuclear weapons danger hasn't gone away. Um, mm. And that unless we get rid of these doomsday weapons, at some point they're going to be used. Um, so, and we desperately need to get rid of them before that how, happens. Yeah. So how does the treaty um, for the... It's called the Treaty for the Ab Abolition... The and treaty for weapons? the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. How, how does it... Does it have sort of a pathway for the uh, the disarmament? <laughs> so, like, maybe getting rid of land-based weapons at first? Or, or... So the, the treaty's a remarkable document, and I... You know, I, it's such an in, inspiring and I think important document and not enough people know about it. It's a really short little thing. I'd really encourage people to, to have a look at it. Um, okay, I'll so put it, I'll put it So I might, would it be helpful to just say a little bit about the background of it, like how yeah. we got it, why it's, what sort of underpins it? Um, so essentially, if you look historically at, at other indiscriminate inhumane weapons, other weapons of mass destruction, um, so the other weapons of mass destruction are generally considered to be biological and toxin weapons and chemical weapons. And then there's a range of other weapons that are considered indiscriminate and inhumane, which basically means that um, the United Nations, the International Committee of the Red Cross, which is one of the key custodians of international humanitarian law that 
governs what happens in wars, um, says basically these are weapons that you can't really use in any way that won't have indiscriminate inhumane consequences, that won't violate the laws of war. Um, and so we have made progress, significant progress on controlling all of those. Um, and they basically are, apart from the biological weapons and, and chemical weapons, where there are treaties that that um, that um, prohibit them and get rid of them in the case of chemical weapons. Um, we've got treaties against landmines, anti-personnel landmines and cluster munitions, which are basically one bomb containing many bomblets that are dispersed. It's like a like a package of landmines, essentially, that, that um, has every disadvantage of, 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 of landmines magnified by, but in number. So, and we also have international, in the past, um, you know, things that are perhaps less effective, but things against fragmenting bullets, you know, dum-dum um, bullets, that, that, that expanding bullets. Um, we have international statements against the use of blinding laser weapons, mm. um, you know, using lasers to, to physically blind. So, um, so we've shown that we can make trees so, doing this stuff. Yeah, yeah but... so we've, and for each of those indiscriminate inhumane weapons that we've, um, that we've dealt with in some way, the core of making any progress has been agreeing an instrument, you know, some kind of treaty, some kind of um, international agreement that says these weapons are beyond the pale, nobody should have them, we should work to get rid of them, um, and provides the same standard for everybody. And that's been absolutely fundamental to progress. And for all of those weapons, you know, the work isn't completely finished. But since those agreements were made, all of those weapons are much less used, deployed, justified, traded, um, and produced. And that, and a crucial lesson has been that countries have been influenced by those treaties even where they haven't joined up to them. So, for example, the landmines ban and the cluster munitions treaties were opposed by Russia, China, and the US, the major users and producers of each of those. Um, Russia is unfortunately using landmines and cost of munitions in, in Ukraine, but, but if you look, for example, at the US, they have, even though they haven't joined that the landmines treaty and opposed it, at every UN meeting that I, you know, I was going to over many years, um, you would hear US diplomats boast their virtual compliance with the landmines ban because they only now use landmines on the demilitarized zone in North Korea between North and South Korea, um, boasting their compliance with a treaty that they haven't signed. Uh, and they don't produce landmines or cluster munitions in the US anymore. So these treaties have impacts even on countries that don't sign them. And that approach had never been tried for nuclear weapons. Yeah. So, so it helps to generate stigma around Yeah, um, it helps to, to create a norm, to create stigma, to create points of pressure, to create an ethical standard that can yeah. mobilise civil society, that can create a political norm, that can help to, to justify the continuing work and effort that's needed. And that had never been done in the nuclear field. So the problem essentially we face in the nuclear field is that the nine states that have nuclear weapons, even though they have, you know, sworn on oath uh, through multiple treaties and, and in more verbiage than you could ever repeat, um, 
committed themselves to a world without nuclear weapons, to getting rid of them. The most uh, specific place where they've done that is the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which, which is now 52 years old, where they committed solemnly to get rid of their weapons, um, the states that had them at that time. Uh, and they basically haven't done that, and they're not serious about that. They've, they've, they're not negotiating uh, to do that. They're, in fact, all spending vast sums of money over 84 billion US dollars last year just in modernizing and building new nuclear weapons. Um, there are no negotiations for nuclear disarmament underway at the moment and the actual number of militarily usable and deployed weapons is, is increasing again. So the nuclear armed states are not serious. So the key question is, you know, what can the rest of the world do that's frustrated and fed up with the failure of these nine states to to get rid of weapons that they claim some unique right to threaten all of creation, all of the biosphere, all of humanity with. All of, you know, whether countries, you know, people have no influence on, they threaten everybody, that's clear. Um, and they claim some unique right. And, and countries are frustrated. The obligation for disarmament in international law is not confined to those nine states. All states have that responsibility. So, so the argument that sort of, the treaty grew out of the concern that, well, what can the rest of the world do? Well, the lesson of history is what states did with the landmines ban, with the cluster munitions ban, with the, with those other conventions, is we can't get rid of weapons we don't own, but we can make them illegal. We can change the rules. We can change the game. Um, of course, it doesn't immediately eliminate weapons, but it's a very essential step because Historically, as I mentioned, if you look at the, all of the other weapons, the key to progress um, in efforts to control them has been an agreement that sets a, a consistent norm and standard that these are, are unacceptable weapons. So creating that for nuclear weapons, um, re, re, you know, in the end, the, it, was a, it was a process through the United Nations that, that was um, many years in the making. Um, and in the end was negotiated surprisingly quickly. You know, people criticise the UN as inefficient and bureaucratic. But the mandate for the negotiations was finalised at the end of December, in December 2016. By the 7th of July, when the mandate expires, we had a treaty. Uh, after only four weeks of actual negotiations over a six-month period, it was extraordinarily efficient and effective process. So what does this treaty do and does it mean anything? The treaty is a, is a really important, I think, document. It, it lays out very firmly, it's very clearly based in evidence, the science about what nuclear weapons do. Um, they're, it's un, they're unacceptable and indiscriminate consequences, the fact that they'll be um, used at some point if they're not eliminated first. And it provides really a comprehensive prohibition um, for the countries that join it on anything to do with nuclear weapons. You can't build, test, maintain, deploy, but you also can't assist any other country to um, do anything that's illegal under the treaty. So you really can't have anything to do with nuclear weapons under the treaty. Further than that, it, it strengthens the safeguards obligations that countries have um, to subject any nuclear activities to safeguards, international safeguards arrangements that um, that help ensure that they are not headed towards weapons development. It provides, uh, for the first time in the nuclear field, 
so-called positive obligations. So these are obligations to do something rather than not do something. And those obligations are around assistance for the victims of nuclear use and testing and helping to remediate environments that have been contaminated by nuclear use and testing. Mm. Um, those are landmark. That's the first time that in the nuclear field that there's been any such obligation and it really provides an important um, signal of hope and potential um, low, you know, way of mobilising international cooperation around assisting the victims of nuclear testing sites and, and um, the victims in Japan still with unmet needs. So, and yeah, so that's it. But it also has pathways for all states to join the treaty. So states with and without nuclear weapons, states mm. that assist with, like Australia, that for example, that don't have nuclear weapons stations on its territory, but that claim protection from another state's nuclear weapons um, and provide assistance for the possible use of that state's nuclear weapons through key facilities hosted in Australia that are involved in nuclear targeting and command and control. There are other states like the many of the NATO states, five of the NATO states, Germany, Netherlands, um, Italy, Turkey and Belgium that have US nuclear weapons stationed on their territory. So for each of those nations, um, each of those kinds of nations, there is a pathway to join I didn't this. realize there were nuclear weapons um, of, of America in in the in Europe. Indeed, yeah. Yeah. okay, about two hundred of them um, oh, yeah. that would be delivered by aircraft from those countries. Right, which is actually in contravention of the Non-Proliferation Treaty, where you're not supposed to share nuclear weapons with other countries. So there's a, there's currently a meeting in Vienna about so, the yeah. So treaty? currently the um, well, it actually starts in a couple of days, but. But this treaty was negotiated in 2017, adopted um, on the 7th of July 2017. Then it was open for signature. When and you say adopted, what, what, what does that process involve? Does that mean that a whole bunch of, there's maybe 40 countries that have signed on? Is it just a... So a the negotiating conference is basically, this was a conference hosted by the, set up under the UN General Assembly. Uh, so hosted at the UN in New York, where every nation that, was invited to participate to help negotiate this treaty, so to actually agree on the tracks to put to put the treaty together. Um, 122 nations uh, voted to adopt this treaty. There was there was one abstention and one opposed. What happened to the other nations? The other 40 odd nations of the world, uh, they stayed away. The nine nuclear armed states and the 32 nations that claim protection from another country's nuclear weapons. Uh, mainly US nuclear weapons, but also um, uh, there's two states, that Armenia and, and another one that claim, um, one of the stands in Kyrgyzstan, I think, that, that claim protection from Russian nuclear weapons. Um, they stayed away. They okay, so they, they, they weren't even, they weren't even they in, weren't the, even in the, the meeting room. room. So um, they didn't abstain, they didn't oppose, no, they just they weren't just, even there. They okay. weren't even there. So, so the right. treaty was then adopted. And so, it, so it, wait, to, to get up in the first place, do, so you and um, the people that initially um, began the campaign, what you found a, a country to a, to propose it, and then and then other people jump on board. Or how did how, how does that work? Well, this was um, this was sort of quite a, another process in itself. But you know, how do you get this treaty? Um, 
I dated back to the, the 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 work that really led up to the treaty started in 2010. Um, okay. And what happened in 2010 was that ICANN had been born, so we established there, there was a clearly a global gap um, in a sort of a coordinating vehicle for civil society efforts. You know, bringing together lots of different organisations to sing from the same hymn sheet to work together in a coordinated way, um, and the strategy of you know, the, we can make progress on nuclear disarmament most effectively now. What can we do now? It's going to depend on the states without the weapons. So the strategic sort of thinking and work to the best thing we can do right now that's actually feasible that we can do is ban the weapons. Um, that conclusion was sort of reached by, I think, ICANN and a number of governments um, sort of by, you know, 2000 seven or eight um in 2010 there was a one of the five yearly review conferences of the non-proliferation treaty so they happen every five years there's one due in august this year um where all of the countries and nearly all the world's countries have signed the non-proliferation treaty which is one of the key treaties in the in the nuclear field which is where the nuclear armed states have committed to get rid of their weapons in exchange for other countries not acquiring them essentially and just before that um that meeting the the president of the international committee of the red cross jacob kellenberger called the diplomatic corps in geneva together and gave a, a really important speech where he basically signaled that the red cross is the world's largest humanitarian organization and it's a key partner for governments in you know emergency and disaster response so the icrc has you know, very serious clout and access to, to government. So Kellenberger really laid it on the line, gave this incredibly important and powerful speech that 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 drew attention to the catastrophic indiscriminate consequences of any use of nuclear weapons that um, drew attention to the major unfinished business of getting rid of them and that put governments on notice that, you know, the Red Cross would pay a lot more attention to this issue now and they could expect to, to hear that. And that um, then created, encouraged a number of governments to ensure that what came out of the review conference a couple of weeks later included for the first time, and these are consensus documents, so every state has to agree, um, recognition of the catastrophic humanitarian consequences of any use of nuclear weapons. Mm. That was really? For the first time, and then then that created the space for initially Norway, followed by Mexico and Austria, to set up conferences, international conferences, for the first time in in twenty um, in twenty thirteen. We had the first international conference focused on the consequences and risks of nuclear weapons. Can you believe that? I mean, it is almost seventy years into the nuclear age. It's the first time mm -hmm. governments have sat down to consider. A dedicated meeting to sit down um, and review what are the what these weapons actually do and what are the what are the risks of them actually being used. There were three such meetings, and at the end of that, the evidence was really laid out very clearly, including the, you know the climate evidence that I've mm. that I've described. So that any use of nuclear weapons would be a catastrophe. That no effective response is possible to even a single nuclear detonation on a city. No government or international organisation or com combination of them has any capacity to respond to the, 
people, the casualties from even a single nuclear weapon explosion. So that's, that's how the process got started. And so yeah, what's happening, so then, what's happening in Vienna through, on Monday? So then it went through the a couple of sort of UN processes, you know, to consider the best ways forward. And there was, and those conferences, again, boycotted by um, by some of the nuclear armed states, but recommended that, that the next best thing the world could do would be to ban the weapons. And then that went to the General Assembly and it gave the negotiating mandate. So what's happening on, on, on next week is that um, this treaty, once it was negotiated, a few months later, it became open for signature, so countries can join it. And that's for many countries, that's a two-step process. So you, when you sign the treaty, it says signals your intent to join it, and you, you, you're then not supposed to do anything that would contravene the treaty. While you're getting all of your ducks in a row domestically, make sure all your legislative and regulatory settings are would be consistent with the treaty so that when you ratify it, you're then in a position to be legally bound by it and compliant with its provisions. Yeah. And that may, you know, take some time. So yeah, the treaty entered into is... legal force in January 21, when 50 but... states had ratified it. And so they might want to ratify states... something. That, that means that it has to pass it through their parliament. So it has to be yeah. turned into law by an act of parliament. Yeah. So in, that's, in yeah, state, the process yeah. is different mm. in different states, but it's yeah. you know it's constitutionally mandated. Usually, um, it often requires multiple sort of departmental reviews, and often requires legislation in parliament um, as well as executive action. It's it's a different combination of things in different countries, but basically they have to make sure that all of their they're in, they're ready to accept the legal obligations that the treaty provides and and able to be fully in compliance with it. So mm. when 50 states, so this was specified in the treaty, when 50 states have ratified it enters into legal force, which means it becomes binding on those states that have joined it. And then a process kicks in where, you know, the states that have joined the treaty regularly meet to discuss its implementation and how to strengthen and promote the treaty. So the first of those meetings is happening in, in Vienna next week. And it's particularly important because all nations are invited to, to join. A number of states that haven't joined the treaty have said that they'll be present. Some of those include states that are in NATO and that have nuclear weapons on their soil, like Germany uh, and Norway, which is in NATO. Um, and Australia now has a government um, which is committed to sign and ratify this treaty. So we fully expect the Australian government will be represented at the meeting. So what would that mean for Australia? We'd have to get rid of the nuclear facility so targeting for facilities? Australia, when Australia joins the treaty, um, it presumably would go through the two-step process of signing and then ratifying. So signature can be done, you know, essentially immediately. Um, what Australia would need to do to essentially no longer be part of the problem of nuclear weapons and move decisively to being part of the solution. Australia would need to firstly renounce, um, you know, currently our defence strategy says, you know, US nuclear weapons are the ultimate guarantor of Australian security. So we would have to say, no, we don't want to be protected by nuclear weapons. We can't be protected by nuclear weapons. We don't want nuclear weapons ever used on our behalf. And that would be something that we could simply state because in no treaty with, not in the ANZUS treaty, not in any other treaty with the United States, is there a 
um, any specification of nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons are not mentioned in the ANZUS Treaty. Um, so we could simply say we no longer want to be part of the justification of or, or have nuclear weapons in, in any circumstances used on our behalf. That would be easy. The second thing would be that to actually ratify the treaty and, and to be in compliance with it, we would need to no longer assist um, in the possible use of nuclear weapons. So that would mean that the nuclear weapons related functions of Pine Gap, Northwest Cape, potentially other facilities in Australia that currently do provide, um, that do provide um, via satellite links and communications a role in, in nuclear, nuclear targeting um, and command and control in, in the nuclear field. Those functions would have to be decommissioned, changed, um, so that we no longer provided that support for possible US use of nuclear weapons. Um, and we're quite confident that that, you know, could quite readily be done without interfering with the intelligence and surveillance functions of those facilities. Um, there's nothing in the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons that prohibits military cooperation with a nuclear armed state, provided that the cooperation doesn't involve uh, nuclear weapons, any cooperation in the nuclear field. And the proof of the pudding's in the eating, and there have already been, you know, three uh, US allies in our region, New Zealand, um, Thailand and the Philippines, um, that have ratified the treaty and for whom there has been no disruption or no issues with any of their ongoing uh, military cooperation with the US because for them it doesn't involve any nuclear weapons related mm. activities. So we know that this, this can be done. So Australia would have to negotiate with the US um, to, you know, to tweak the functions at Pine Gap and Northwest Cape so that we weren't assisting possible nuclear weapons uh, launch and targeting anymore. Um, and, you know, that, that it, it certainly is completely consistent, compatible with, with continuing military cooperation with the US on other, in other ways. Has the US made any commitment to use nuclear weapons on behalf of Australia or is it just our defence posture? The US hasn't contradicted. It's a little complicated legally, yeah. but um, a couple of legal scholars have, have, have looked at this in detail, particularly uh, Dr. Monique Cormier and, and, and Dr. Anna Hood um, have published, you know, some very thoughtful and detailed legal analyses of this. And essentially because, although it's not stated in any treaty anywhere that the US uh, would defend Australia with nuclear weapons, um, Australia's claim that it relies on US nuclear weapons and the US failure to say it doesn't uh, makes that essentially the de facto uh, practice. Um, the only statement that I'm aware of um, that, that confirms that from the US side was um, John Hyatt, a former head of, I think current head still of Strategic Command has you know, said as much in a presentation that but there's no formal documentation. So it's, it, it's, you know, it's pretty, that's the way Australia has chosen to interpret it since, and it's been repeated in every white paper since the early nineties. Um, but it's not actually in any, any there's no publicly known commitment, um, or certainly no treaty um, where that's specified. So none of those things, the ANZUS treaty doesn't require renegotiation. Um, 
Okay, we're just about out of time now. Do, any any last words from you, Tillman? <laughs> well, I, I just think in at the moment, I you know, nuclear weapons have really raised their ugly head again in a very stark way with the Russian invasion of of, of Ukraine, and um, this is really the most dangerous time in global affairs, I think, since the Cuban Missile Crisis in, in 1962. So um, there's serious work to be done. There's a real urgency about this issue and these, these weapons have to be eliminated before they eliminate us. Um, they will eventually be used if we don't get rid of them. Um, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons is, a, is the one positive bright thing that's happening in this landscape. Um, and what I didn't finish saying is, is that it does provide pathways for every kind of state to join this treaty and to play their part in getting mm. rid of nuclear weapons through a verified time-bound process. Um, whether you've had nuclear weapons in the past, got them now, haven't never had them, had them state, stationed on your territory like Australia, um, claim protection from them and assist with their possible use but don't have them stationed on your territory, this treaty provides pathways for all states to build a nuclear weapons-free world, and we, and, and I would strongly argue it's our it's our best hope against our worst uh, our worst weapons. Um, and I would just want to say too, I hope that uh, your listeners are aware that I can, um, the main civil society partner to the governments that uh, negotiated and are promoting this treaty, um, which was recognised by the 2017. Nobel Peace Prize was founded um, in Melbourne, in Australia. It was, you know, an initiative of of a couple of people sitting around, you know, a table in Carlton uh, in 2005. Um, if there was ever a, a proof that, you know, a small number of people can can make a difference, it, it was that. Um, I hope people have some sense of pride and ownership of of that because it's the first time that an Australian-born entity has been recognised with, um, I guess, the world's highest accolade in, in peace. Um, so I hope everybody's uh, proud of that. But of course, um, there, there's work to be done, but it's enormously uh, exciting and positive that um, uh, the new government is is committed to, to join the treaty and we fully uh, expect uh, that they will they will do so shortly. Okay. Well, yeah, that's that's fantastic. And um, yeah, th thanks very much for coming on the show and keep up the the good work with the with the work on the treaty, Tillman. Thanks very uh, much, Tom. Yeah, thank to you. To you. Okay, likewise.